San Francisco, an oasis of civilization in the California desert. Uh, tell me, do you share my high opinion of San Francisco? Welcome to The Door Stays Open, a podcast about San Francisco's retail past, present, and future. My name is Annie Wilson. I'm a San Francisco native who spent their entire career in some aspect of the retail industry. I'm also a writer and now a podcast host. I'll be talking about our city's retail life with friends, retailers, entrepreneurs, and visionaries, those with years in the retail trenches and those looking ahead to what's next. Is it crazy to want to start a retail business in 2021? Does anyone even shop in San Francisco anymore? Where do we go from here? I'm not sure, but I'm hoping you'll join me while I try and find out. This is not a history podcast per se, but learning the history of cities is crucial to understand the why and how of their contemporary life. I thought it was good to start at the beginning of San Francisco and early California because our contemporary life in San Francisco is driven by the same desire that drew people here in the beginning, opportunity. There are a lot of big abstract ideas, well, myths about California, most of them around the idea of the Golden West, expansion, abundance, both land and fiscal, and the notion of treasure at the end of the earth. I want to show that in order to chase these ideas, the people that have come here have always been enterprising and entrepreneurial, pivoting and adapting to whatever opportunity was set in front of them, saying yes to everything and getting others to say yes to them. This isn't just a phenomenon of the modern tech world and its venture capitalists. There were always people with ideas and people to finance them. There were always people in need of a product or service and people to supply them. California entered history as a myth in a medieval Spanish best-selling novel. In 1510, the Spanish writer García Ordóñez de Montalvo published Las Sergas de Esplandian, The Deeds of Esplandian. This narrative chronicled the exploits of Esplandian, son of the hero Amadis of Gaul. Among Esplandian's allies at the siege of Constantinople were the Californians, a race of black Amazons under the command of Queen Calafia. California itself, according to Montalvo, was an island on the right hand of the Indies, very close to the side of the terrestrial paradise, abounding in gold and precious stones. The Californians rode griffins into battle and fought with golden weapons. Queen Calafia herself was very large in person, the most beautiful of all of them, of blooming years, and in her thoughts desirous of achieving great things, strong of limb and of great courage. In truth, the mythical island turned out to be the physical clash point of the North American and Pacific tectonic plates, shaking, smashing, rising, flattening, and shifting into an arrangement of high mountains, low deserts, lush valleys, sharp canyons, and wild coastline. Not an island then, but the proverbial Finisterra, or Land's End. The California-born philosopher and historian Josiah Royce observed, There is nothing subtle about the landforms and landscapes of California. Everything is scaled in bold and heroic arrangements that are easily understood. Easily understood, but just as easily missed. 
being just a mile wide opening, what we now call the Golden Gate had been missed by explorers for decades. Sir Francis Drake sailed from England in 1577, ultimately landing at a bay near Point Reyes in 1579, now called Drake's Bay, but missing the larger bay to the south. Sebastian Vizcaño led an expedition from Mexico in 1602, and while they came close to the Farallon Islands, they too missed the narrow entrance to the harbor. Vizcaño sailed as far north as Cape Mendocino before being forced to return to Acapulco. After this failed attempt, though, the Spanish gave up exploration of Alta California for 167 years. Finally, in 1775, Spanish sailors on board the San Carlos spotted the opening and sailed through the Golden Gate and into the bay. Concurrent with the sea exploration, Captain Juan Bautista de Anza left Arizona in 1774 to find a land route from Spanish Mexico to Alta California. The Franciscan Fathers were likewise moving northward from Spanish Mexico, building a series of mission compounds staged about a one- to two-day walk from each other. Anza discovered the shores of the bay in June of 1776, and just five months later, in October, Father Francisco Palu dedicated Mission San Francisco de Assis. I'll just pause here to say a bit about the missions because I would be remiss not to mention that while the system did serve as an initial structure for the development of the state, the effects were disastrous. For more than 25 generations, the indigenous Californians had lived harmoniously with their own myths and rituals and way of life. And now they were being forced from their homelands, brought into the mission system frequently against their will and treated as children not yet possessed of full adulthood. True. Some of them made the transition and were Hispanicized into productive farmers, artisans, and ranchers. Yet many more died of shock at their displacement, of Spanish diseases, and of rampant sexual exploitation. The mission system began Mexico's expansion into Alta California, but at a devastating cost, the ultimate result being the effective genocide of the 70 different ethnic groups of California's indigenous people over their history. At this time, San Francisco wasn't yet San Francisco, despite the mission's name. It was called Yerba Buena, the good herb. It was the land of the Rametush Ohlone. The Ohlone villages were centered around the watersheds of Mission Creek, Visitation Valley, Lake Merced, and Tennessee Hollow in the Presidio. It was at Tennessee Hollow and its source of El Polan Spring that one of Yerba Buena's first entrepreneurs grew up. Born in 1802 in Santa Cruz, Juana Briones' father was retired from the Spanish army while her mother and grandparents had been a part of the Anza expedition, landing in California in 1776. The majority of the population of Santa Cruz was indigenous, so young Juana learned their language and customs from an early age. When her mother died in 1812, the family moved to the Olone village around Tennessee Hollow, which was part of the farm and grazing land tied to the Presidio. Juana continued to learn herbal remedies and medicines from the indigenous Olone and became a local healer and midwife over time. When she was 18 in 1820, Juana married Apolinario Miranda, a cavalry officer from the Presidio, and they moved a short distance away to their own farm at the edge of the Presidio at Green and Lion Streets. The couple eventually had 11 children, eight of whom lived into adulthood. Juana managed the farm, raised her children, and continued to nurse anyone else who came to her needing treatment. In 1821, Mexico gained its independence from Spain, and with this change, Alta California became a Mexican territory. While this meant an uptick in trade, 
the village of Yerba Buena went on as much as it did before, existing on farming, ranching, and intermittent trade with fur trappers from Russia and Canada's Hudson Bay Company. In 1835, General Vallejo moved his headquarters north to Sonoma from the Presidio. This was due to the Russian fur trade settlement at Fort Ross getting larger and making deeper inroads into California, which the Mexican government wanted to prevent. It was at this time that Juana, with the support of both the bishop and the mayor, left her husband due to his ongoing alcoholism and abuse, a shocking separation for the time. Juana dropped her husband's name and moved to the base of Telegraph Hill, roughly where Washington Square is today in North Beach. In fact, North Beach was commonly known in the Yerba Buena days as La Playa de Juana Briones. Here, she built a one and a half story adobe house, the first private home between the mission and the Presidio, and held the property title in her own name. Juana treated smallpox, sailors with scurvy, set bones, delivered babies, and continued to use her knowledge of local medicinal herbs learned from the Olone. In the meantime, she sold milk and vegetables to the crews of sailors that anchored in the bay. Juana was so successful in this endeavor, building up such a prosperous farm, healing, and trade business, that she purchased 4,400 acres of land in Santa Clara called Rancho La Purisma Concepcion, expanding her cattle and farming interests. Juana Briones continued to expand and acquire land until she died in 1889 at the age of 87. Today, there are plaques to commemorate Juana Briones in Washington Square, in the Presidio Wall at Green and Lion, as well as at El Polan Spring, all of which you can visit. I wanted to tell Doña Juana's story as part of this podcast because she is often overlooked in the general histories of San Francisco, and also because so much of our local mercantile and entrepreneurship today is developed and led by women. Doña Juana was the first. Yerba Buena continued to be a sleepy village for a time. Of course, this is a simplification. There was a lot happening by way of political intrigues, land grants, and espionage from many players from many countries. California was shaping up to be a prize, and the port of Yerba Buena was clearly going to be a valuable harbor for any trade. You would be missing a trick if you didn't see its raw potential. Since about 1822, tradesmen from other Mexican, South American, and California ports, as well as the Sandwich Islands, that's Hawaii, carried on traffic with Yerba Buena. They mostly traded in tallow, soap, and either seal or beaver hides. California sent tallow to Peru and hides to England and the ports of the eastern United States. The price of a hide was 50 cents and of tallow, $6 per hundred pounds. In 1835, a young Bostonian named Richard Henry Dana visited Yerba Buena while working on board a Yankee sailing vessel. He eventually would publish a memoir of his adventures in 1840, entitled Two Years Before the Mast, which sold 10,000 copies in its first year. In Dana's diary from December 27, 1835, he prophesied, We passed directly under the high cliff on which the Presidio was built, and stood into the middle of the bay, from whence we could see small bays, making up into the interior on every side, large and beautifully wooded islands, and the mouths of several small rivers. If California ever becomes a prosperous country, this bay will be the center of its prosperity. 
The abundance of wood and water, the extreme fertility of its shores, the excellence of its climate, which is as near being perfect as any in the world, and its facilities for navigation, affording the best anchoring grounds in the whole western coast of America, all fit it for a place of great importance. And, indeed, it has attracted much attention, for the settlement of Yerba Buena where we lay at anchor, made chiefly by Americans and English, and which bids fair to become the most important trading place on the coast, at this time began to supply traders, Russian ships, and whalers with their stores of wheat and frijoles. Shortly after Mexican independence, Captain William Richardson arrived in Yerba Buena on board the British whaling ship Orion. When the boat sailed, Richardson stayed. He had picked up Spanish during his travels and knew enough to woo Maria Antonia Martinez, eldest daughter of Ignacio Martinez, the commander of the Presidio. By 1825, Richardson had become a naturalized Mexican citizen and a Roman Catholic and had married young Maria. Due to his Mexican citizenship and advantageous marriage, Richardson petitioned for the land grant of Rancho Sausalito, a large tract in southern Marin, including Sausalito and Tiburon. While waiting for the Mexican government to determine his petition, Richardson settled permanently in Yerba Buena, eventually building a structure in 1835. According to the Annals of San Francisco, it was a large tent supported on four redwood posts and covered with a ship's foresail located near the plaza by the eastern waterfront. Richardson intended for it to be a trading post and resupply hub for ships visiting the harbor, convenient to have when he was appointed harbor master in 1835. Three years later, Richardson's land grant had been approved and he moved to his rancho in Marin, where Richardson Bay is his namesake. In 1836, Mr. Jacob Primer Lease arrived at Yerba Buena with the intention of establishing a mercantile business. He took a lot adjoining Captain Richardson's trading post at the corner of Clay and DuPont Streets, now Grant Avenue. The Annals of San Francisco again omitted Juana Briones by stating, These two houses, belonging to Captain Richardson and Mr. Lease, were the earliest houses erected in Yerba Buena and formed the beginning of the city of San Francisco. A few days after a lavish, multi-day 4th of July fiesta hosted by Lease, he set up shop with the $12,000 of product he had waiting in a ship in the cove and opened for business. Like Richardson, Lease married a daughter of Mexico, choosing from among General Vallejo's many beautiful daughters. By 1841, he sold his mercantile shop to the Hudson Bay Company and moved with his family to Sonoma. Yerba Buena continued to be a village of just a few dozen houses, and eventually, even the Hudson Bay Company sold up their trading post and went back to Canada in 1846. Johann Augustus Suter was born in Germany in 1803 and raised in Switzerland. He married the daughter of a rich widow at 21, but proved he was far better at spending money than earning it. Dodging his debts and other nefarious charges that would see him in prison, Suter left his wife and five children in Switzerland, escaping to America with a French passport. When he arrived in New York City in July of 1834, he styled himself as Captain John August Sutter. Part hustler, part dreamer, part con artist, Sutter stayed on the move in the United States, traveling from New York to St. Louis, then on to Santa Fe and eventually Kansas City. 
Here he joined up with a fur trapper and his expedition of missionaries and took off on the Oregon Trail in April of 1838, eventually landing in Fort Vancouver in the Oregon Territory that October. Sutter wanted to cross the Siskiyou Mountains south into California, but was advised against it as it was soon to be deep winter. So he then chartered the British ship Columbia and sailed to the Sandwich Islands in November, reaching Honolulu by early December. Having missed the only ship heading to Alta California, Sutter was delayed in Hawaii for four months, but he put the time to good use. While still in Honolulu, he began spinning a story of himself that involved time in the Swiss Guard, guarding none other than Charles X of France. Such a Swiss Guard did not actually exist. A gregarious charmer, even an outright liar, Sutter used the time to network with the American, English, and Irish consuls in Hawaii, as well as the many merchants and traders that frequented the port. Eventually, Sutter found a ship to take him on to Alta, California. The Clementine left in April of 1839 and made its way first to New Archangel, now Sitka, the capital of the Russian-American Fur Company, a fur trading company sponsored by the Tsar. After a month of Russian hospitality in Sitka, the Clementine sailed south to Yerba Buena and arrived on July 1, 1839. Sutter immediately went on to the local government offices in Monterey, pitching his idea for New Helvetia, or New Switzerland, a sort of colony of agrarian utopia dreamed up by Sutter. Governor Alvarado was sold on the idea, thinking such a development could bolster Mexican defenses in the Northeast, and allowed Sutter to begin work on New Helvetia, with the stipulation that he, like Richardson and Lease, had to become a Mexican citizen in order to own the land. While unconfirmed, it is believed that Sutter visited Jacob Lease's trading post, which is likely given that it was the only place to visit in Yerba Buena at the time. In Charles Caldwell Doby's fictionalized history, San Francisco, a pageant from 1934, he asks, did he tell them that it had been the failure of his business in Bern that had driven him to America? Did he outline his dream for an independent principality, a new Helvetia in the trading post that was to be more fort than Pueblo? Did he let them believe the current fiction that he had once been a captain in the famous Swiss Guard of no less a person than Charles X? From all accounts, he was a polished and impressive man with a blue eye that could both pierce and twinkle, and the hangers-on remembered him many days after his departure. Just the vision of the fleet of boats and barges which he hired from Nathan Spear would have him fixed in their memory. He sailed away up the Sacramento River on a day in the midsummer of 1839 with three white companions, his ten kanakas from Oahu, an Indian boy picked up in the northwest, and a bulldog. In June of 1841, Sutter completed construction of his fort with its walls 18 feet high and 3 feet thick, and was given the land grant of over 48,000 acres at the meeting point of the Sacramento and American rivers. In the same year, Sutter expanded his settlement when the Russians abandoned Fort Ross, their outpost on the coast, and offered to sell it to him for $30,000. In true con artist fashion, Sutter supposedly paid the Russians with a note he never honored, and practically dismantled the fort and moved its equipment, livestock, and buildings to the Sacramento Valley. The new Helvetia site became commonly known as Sutter's Fort, and it is still intact today in the heart of downtown Sacramento. 
While Sutter's Fort did work and become a prosperous agrarian community, it became, like the mission system, a thinly disguised method of enslaving the indigenous Miwok and Maidu people, as well as the group of Hawaiian Kanakas Sutter had brought with him from Honolulu. Like the Franciscan Fathers, Sutter began by being friendly with the tribes, getting many to work for him voluntarily. But eventually, this turned into violent coercion and outright slavery. Sutter thought it was his right, as a white landowner, that these people work for him on his land. Eventually, Sutter's Fort became the ending point of the California Trail, a southern offshoot of the Oregon Trail. For the next nine years, Sutter built up his land and created a prosperous commercial enterprise, acres of grain, a 10-acre orchard, a herd of 15,000 cattle, even two acres of Castile roses. Although not a merchant per se, another significant founder of early San Francisco arrived in 1841, this time from New Orleans. Born in St. Croix in 1810 when the Virgin Islands were the Danish West Indies, William Liedsdorf was the eldest son of a Danish-German-Jewish sugar plantation manager and his Carib-African-Spanish wife, who was possibly born in Cuba. Liedsdorf migrated to New Orleans in 1834 and then eventually on to Yerba Buena. As captain of the schooner Julia Ann, Liedsdorf made his way from New York via Panama, St. Croix, Brazil, Chile, Sandwich Islands, Sitka, and then finally south to Yerba Buena. He decided to stay. Liedsdorf quickly launched a steamboat business on the bay, ferrying passengers up to the Sacramento River. He built the first hotel in Yerba Buena, the City Hotel, and the first commercial warehouse on what would one day become Liedsdorf Street. Like Richardson before him, Liedsdorf learned Spanish, became a Catholic, and became a Mexican citizen in 1844, all of which made him eligible to receive a land grant from the Mexican government of eight leagues, or 35,500 acres, south of the American River, neighboring John Sutter's land near Sacramento, known as Rancho Rio de los Americanos. We'll get back to what happened to Sutter and Liedsdorf a little later. Politically, the fate of California was getting more and more interesting. For the purposes of this story, though, I'll sum up. In 1844, President James Polk was elected 11th President of the United States on a platform largely based on the country's expansion into the Oregon and Texas territories. Polk advocated expansion by peaceful means of negotiation, but was essentially okay with armed conflict if necessary. The dashing Captain John C. Fremont was commanding an exploring and mapping expedition into California starting in 1845. A native of Georgia, Fremont, or Fremont, was known to be a true gentleman soldier. Already an author and explorer, Fremont was passionate about the United States' expansionist platform. His father-in-law was none other than expansionist Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who was the primary architect and champion of America's Western expansion, a cause that came to be known as Manifest Destiny. One could say that Captain Fremont was the right man in the right place at exactly the right time. One could also argue that perhaps his mapping expedition wasn't entirely altruistic. He moved around California in a lightly provocative way, keeping in communication with the army and government in the East, but needing to be circumspect as any direct action could violate the Neutrality Act of 1794. Fremont was biding his time. 
Early in 1845, the United States annexed the Mexican territory of Texas. This fit in perfectly with President Polk's objectives for expansion, and he annexed Texas by peaceful means, which the Mexican government saw as a provocation. Mexican forces attacked American forces in Texas, and the U.S. Congress declared war in May 1846. Now, this is a very simplified version of events, but the result was that the Mexican-American War had begun, which meant the Mexican territory of California was now in play. Due to the disorganization of the Mexican government in their burgeoning California territory, just two months later, in June of 1846, a group of American settlers around Sonoma rebelled against Mexican rule in the short-lived Bear Flag Revolt. No one in California yet knew that war had officially been declared in Washington, D.C. because of the slowness of transcontinental news, but this local insurrection helped set the stage for larger action. Fremont and his men were involved in many small adventures and skirmishes with the Mexican Californios throughout June and early July, but after the capture of Monterey on July 7th, the flag of the United States was raised over Alta California. In Yerba Buena, the U.S. Navy ship that had brought Captain Montgomery and American forces to raise the flag was the USS Portsmouth, and ever after, the plaza where the flag was raised was known as Portsmouth Square. Along with this name change, the city was officially renamed from Yerba Buena to San Francisco in early 1847. The Bear Flag Revolt had ended quickly. California had been claimed for the United States, but the Mexican-American War would continue for another two years. In 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ended the war, ceding nearly a third of Mexico's land to the United States. The treaty gave the U.S. undisputed control of Texas, established the U.S.-Mexican border along the Rio Grande, and ceded to the United States the present-day states of California, Nevada, and Utah, most of New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado, and parts of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. In return, Mexico received $15 million, and the U.S. agreed to assume $3.25 million in debts that the Mexican government owed to U.S. citizens. President Polk had promised that the war was to be swift and bloodless, but it was neither. For the Americans, over 1,700 were killed and over 4,000 returned wounded or maimed. For the Mexicans, over 5,000 soldiers and 4,000 civilians were killed, along with countless thousands wounded. While the Mexican-American War fulfilled the objective of Manifest Destiny, connecting the United States in one landmass from coast to coast, the progressive thinkers of the day, such as Henry David Thoreau, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, all opposed the needless violence and greedy acquisitiveness of the war, especially against a country with a shared border. Toward the end of the war, Emerson wrote a commentary on the immorality of the aggression, stating, The United States will conquer Mexico, but it will be as the man swallows the arsenic, which will bring him down in turn. Mexico will poison us. In the late summer of 1847, John Sutter decided that he wanted to build a wharf along the American River so that his fort of New Helvetia could easily trade via the Delta and into the bay. To do this, he needed lumber, and therefore, he needed a sawmill. Originally from New Jersey, James Marshall had landed at Sutter's Fort after traveling west on the Oregon Trail. A carpenter by trade, 
he and Sutter partnered in the sawmill, with Marshall overseeing the building and management for a portion of the lumber. The pair found a spot roughly 36 miles north of Sutter's Fort on the American River called Coloma. In 1846, Samuel Brannan chartered a boat, the Brooklyn, and sailed with a group of Mormons from New York City around Cape Horn to California. As the presiding Mormon elder on the trip, Brannon brought a printing press and a complete flour mill to help with settling in. After a supply stopover in Honolulu, the Brooklyn arrived at Yerba Buena just days after Montgomery had raised the American flag over the city. Brannon founded the first newspaper in San Francisco, the California Star, in 1847. It was the second newspaper in California after the Californian was founded in Monterey a year earlier. By 1848, the two papers had merged to become the Daily Alta California. At this time, the new administration of San Francisco decided to start selling some of the waterfront property. According to the Annals of San Francisco, to attract buyers, the town magistrate, Edwin Bryant, published this in Brandon's California Star. The site of the town of San Francisco is known to all navigators and mercantile men acquainted with the subject to be the most commanding commercial position on the entire eastern coast of the Pacific Ocean, and the town itself is, no doubt, destined to become the commercial emporium of the western side of the American continent. The property offered for sale is the most valuable in or belonging to the town, and the acquisition of it is an object of deep interest to all mercantile houses in California and elsewhere engaged in the commerce of the Pacific. Samuel Brannan was one of the first buyers, building a property portfolio both in San Francisco and in Sacramento. In 1847, he opened a store at Sutter's Fort in Sacramento. Up at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, John Marshall noticed small metallic flecks in the water of the mill's tail race on the morning of January 24, 1848. Marshall showed Sutter the pea-sized nuggets, and the two tested the metal by hammering it and soaking it in a lye solution. Confirming that it was gold, Marshall and Sutter agreed to keep the discovery quiet. However, when some of Marshall's workers from the mill came into Samuel Brannan's store at Sutter's Fort, and paid for product with vials of gold dust and nuggets, Brannon was in on the secret. On the sly, Brannon bought up every pickaxe, pan, tent, boot, and shovel he could find and stockpiled them at his store, the only store between San Francisco and the site of the gold discovery. In San Francisco, a pageant, Dobie writes, However the story was circulated, whether by accident or design, Yerba Buena, or San Francisco, as it was now called, as a whole, shrugged its shoulders and refused to be stampeded. As the days went on, rumor succeeded rumor. It was noticeable that there were a few missing faces from the table at the Portsmouth house. Men began to drop out of town quietly, in the most reticent Nordic fashion. If they embarked on a wild goose chase, They were not going to be made the butt of jibes from conservative citizens who met this tale with a supercilious uplift of the eyebrows. Sam Brannan's whiskered face was not in evidence anywhere. Even the conservative began to wonder. Then, one morning, Sam Brannan showed up again. He has a bottle full of gold dust in his hand, and he was running up and down the streets of the town screaming out the news like Paul Revere calling upon the citizens of Boston and way stations to arms. That settled it. The excitement was prodigious, and in a few days the exodus had begun. By boat, by mule and horse, or on foot they went, all eager to reach the mines, 
fearful that the gold would be gone before they could get there and receive their share. As Sutter had feared, his employees were abandoning their jobs, purchasing equipment and supplies from Sam Brannan, and taking to the riverbeds. At his store in Sutter's Fort, Sam Brannan sold the pans he had stockpiled at 20 cents apiece for a full $15 each. For anyone doing retail math, that's a margin of 1,500% per pan. Supposedly, he made $36,000 in the first nine weeks. That's just over a million dollars today. And what of Sutter's Fort? With the gold discovery, it was completely overrun with squatters, destroying nearly everything Sutter had built within just a few months. As Zoe Skinner Eldred said in History of California, his men deserted to the mines after Sutter had spent $30,000 on the mill and everything was stolen, even the stones. The immigrants stole the bells from the fort and the weights from the gates. They carried off 200 barrels he had made for packing salmon. They stole even his cannon. They drove their stock into his yard and helped themselves to his grain and anything else they wanted. They squatted on his land and denied the validity of his title, cut down his timber, and drove off his cattle. Sharpers robbed him of what the squatters did not take, until at last he was stripped of everything. Along with this, Sutter's land grant was challenged, and in 1858 the U.S. Supreme Court denied its validity. Sutter's attempts for government restitution for his losses came to nothing. Sutter died in 1880, having lost nearly everything. And what about William Liedsdorf and his neighboring land grant? Over the years, Liedsdorf had gained a high reputation for integrity and enterprise in San Francisco. He was a well-liked and well-respected figure among the early San Franciscans, and eventually became one of its wealthiest residents due to the success of his many businesses. In fact, one could say that due to the prodigious location of his land grant next to the American River in Sacramento, just a short distance from the gold fields, Liedsdorf was actually worth more dead than alive. Leitzdorf died in May of 1848 of typhoid fever. Or was it pneumonia? Or was he murdered? Leitzdorf was 38, had never married, had never written a will, and therefore his vast holdings were intestate. As there were no probate laws in California at the time, his estate was held up in court for months while attempts were made to locate his family in the Caribbean. San Francisco Harbor Master Joseph Folsom seemed to have been well-positioned in the matter, knowing the affable Leedsdorf while in San Francisco. Their friendship gained him an understanding of Leedsdorf's holdings, and somehow Folsom knew where to locate Leedsdorf's mother in the West Indies. He paid her $75,000 for the title to Leedsdorf's real estate holdings in San Francisco and Sacramento. She agreed, but later took Folsom to court, challenging him for false estimation of the estate. Determined that she had no case due to not being an American citizen, and that Leifsdorf's own title to the holdings was questionable due to his dual Mexican and American citizenships. In the end, all claims from Leifsdorf's family were thrown out of the courts, and the title purchased by Joseph Folsom for $75,000 was protected. When the portion to state was auctioned off in 1856, the property brought more than $1.45 million, or $44.5 million today. In his memoirs, when considering the narrow entrance to San Francisco Bay, John C. Fremont wrote, To this gate I gave the name of Chrysopile, or Golden Gate, for the same reasons that the harbor of Byzantium was called Chrysoceras, or Golden Horn. He went on to comment that the strait was 
a golden gate to trade with the Orient. The Golden Horn, of course, is the peninsula of the modern city of Istanbul, the European gateway to the Orient, and the proverbial end of the Silk Route through the Middle East, India, and China. Here, in San Francisco, on the opposite side of the globe, Fremont saw its equal. This wasn't the only mythic connotations attributed to the potential treasures to be had in California. Gold hunters that originally came from France were being called Argonauts, likening their long journey to California to that of Jason and his crew on board the Argo and their pursuit of the Golden Fleece at the end of the world. The modern usage of Argonauts then came to be commonly used for anyone who came to California in the search of gold, both out of the ground and out of their own resourcefulness. The first Argonauts started to arrive in the spring and summer of 1848. But like the news of the Mexican-American War moving east to west, the news of the gold discovery took its time reaching the major American cities out east. Hearing news of people abandoning their jobs for the gold fields, Army Colonel Richard Mason toured the fields himself in July of 1848, along with his aide, Lieutenant William Tecumseh Sherman. Returning to Monterey, Sherman wrote a report which Mason signed for delivery to President Polk. Lieutenant Lucian Loser was dispatched to Washington via the Isthmus of Panama with Mason's report and 230 ounces of California gold packed into an oyster can. Loser left Monterey at the end of August and arrived in Washington in late November. On December 4, 1848, just 10 months after the conclusion of the Mexican-American War in which the United States acquired California, President Polk made it official in a message to Congress. Gold had been discovered in California. Overnight, the regional gold rush of 1848 exploded into the international gold rush of 1849. Instantly, San Francisco became the most explosively opportunistic city in the world. As Dobie wrote, at last, it was the established port of the Pacific coast. It was no longer a neglected stepchild, but a princess in its own right. A very raggle-taggle gypsy princess, a bit bawdy and something of a sloven, run down at the heels and out at the elbows, but with potentialities for a queenly future. Those heading to California and its new princess city had a few different options of routes to take. Around Cape Horn by boat, taking five to eight months, overland by wagon train, taking six to nine months, or again by boat to the Isthmus of Panama, where a line of pack mules would take people and supplies through the 50 miles of swamp and jungle from the Caribbean to the Pacific, taking three to four months. Any of these options had plenty of associated risks. While likely the fastest route from eastern and Caribbean ports, crossing Panama could result in a bad case of cholera or malaria, snake bite, alligator attack, drowning, or the general being set upon by ruffians in a case of robbery or murder. There was also the uncertainty of catching another boat north once you reached Panama City. Eventually, the Pacific Mail Steamship Company, originally founded to carry cargo and mail between Peru and California in 1848, began picking up passengers in Panama and making regular runs. Upon arrival in California, the Argonauts had another 120 or so miles to get to the gold. 
According to Stuart Edward White's Old California in Picture and Story, there were two ways to go back country, by water, up the Sacramento River, and by land, via Sonoma or the Livermore Pass. It cost one $40 passage by boat, and one had to help row the boat. The gold hunters found it not only cheaper, but quicker to go on foot. It is said that at night, their campfires lighted the whole trail to the base of the mountains. Unfortunately for the Argonauts, the winter of 1849 was one of the wettest on record. That is to say, it rained constantly, making the town of San Francisco a deep mud puddle of unfinished streets and ramshackle dwellings. I have seen, said General Sherman, mules stumble in the streets and drown in the liquid mud. I always dreaded to ride on horseback because the mud was so deep that a horse's legs would become entangled in the brush below and the rider was likely to be thrown and drowned in the mud. This did happen in a few instances. At the corner of Clay and Kearney streets, some public-spirited citizen put up a warning sign. This street is impassable. Not even Jack Assable. The town was without proper streets, water supply, sewage, or even provisions. It reportedly had a rat problem too, but the young Argonauts complained little and made do. In San Francisco Port of Gold, William Martin Camp wrote, They were boys who had been too young to fight in the war with Mexico, boys who had come of age and looked forward to nothing more exciting than working the farms, attending their father's businesses, or hiring out as apprentices, boys to whom the call of California was the most exciting thing in the world. And so, they had loaded down with red flannel shirts, pistols and belts, knives, picks, shovels, and ingenious gold mining contraptions which were supposed to make gold extraction easy, whistles for signaling each other in case of a wild Indian attack, and usually some of Mr. Goodyear's rubber tents and coats. As Dobie described, rich men, poor men, beggar men, thieves, were forthwith flung into a melting pot from which neither the doctor, the lawyer, the merchant, nor the chef were missing. Other communities in the New World had been built up by hunger for land, hunger for freedom, hunger for God, and they have each and every one borne the special flavor of the urge and classes which founded them. But the hunger for gold is universal. It attacks all kinds and conditions of men. It filled the erstwhile village of Yerba Buena with cutthroats, Methodist ministers, gamblers, South Sea whalers, university professors, frontier men, French marquises, Chinese laborers, Chilean landowners, Australian convicts, and Philadelphia Quakers. In an eye's twinkling, the new city by the Golden Gate became squalid, pretentious, immoral, high-minded, extravagant, prudent, evil, heroic, all in one breath. But above everything else, San Francisco was fantastic. When the clipper ships dumped cases of tobacco and barrels of beef upon the docks in such quantities that they could not be consumed, it sank both merchandise and containers into the mud for building foundations and made plank walks of them. It ordered its mansions and sections from Boston and Canton and sent its soiled linen to Honolulu and China to be laundered. It suffered a peanut peddler as a judge of its civil courts and it transformed a deserted brig into a jail. 
It took others of its abandoned ships and made saloons, lodgings, storerooms, and even counting houses of them. Robert O'Brien wrote in his light history, This is San Francisco, a classic portrait of the city. 500 ships came bearing gold seekers and rode at anchor hard by the little cove. So myriad were the masts, they say, they resemble a forest of leafless trees. Beneath the masts, the deserted ships swung silently with the tides. They had weathered the gales of Cape Horn, had carried treasure hunters to the western shore, and now, abandoned by their gold-hungry crews, they belonged to the rats. Later on, the wood from the many ships in San Francisco Bay would be salvaged and recycled into the building materials of the new city. It was just sitting there, and where else would they get the wood and planking to build? Slowly, the town began to take shape. As Stuart Edward Wright wrote, The real opportunity was at San Francisco. Through that port must come the feeding, clothing, equipment, and amusement that were to be exchanged for the hundreds of millions pouring out from the mines. Place to catch it coming and going. Even in the earliest days, before the high fever of excitement had dropped a little, certain of the shrewd and level-headed saw this. They did not even have to go to the diggings to find that out. After all, the big-scale deflectors of the Golden Stream were the merchants. These were shrewd and enterprising men of resource and courage. They led the most exciting of lives. With them, as their saying went, it was either a gold spoon or a wooden leg. A man guessed what his market could absorb at the greatest profit and ordered it from the east and waited until it could be brought to him by the sea. By the time it got there, the particular scarcity on which he had calculated might have been supplied by some rival who had thought of it a little sooner. His market was broken. He had on his hands a shipload of commodities with less than no value. To add to the spirit of the occasion, Eastern shippers seemed to think that anything worth nothing at home might be worth something in California. No harm trying. We find the sprawling tent and shack city flooded with calicos and silks, elaborately rich furniture, huge plate glass mirrors, a whole list of absurdities considering the times. The myth of the California gold rush is that everyone struck it rich in the mines and rivers of the Sierra foothills commonly called the Motherlode. This was untrue. Yes, there was a great deal of gold to be found. According to the Annals of San Francisco, 10 to $15 worth of gold dust was about the usual proceeds of an ordinary day's hard work. At what were called the dry diggings particularly, the yield of gold was enormous. One piece of pure metal was found of 13 pounds in weight. Individuals made their $5,000, $10,000, and $15,000 in the space of only a few weeks. One man dug out $12,000 in a single day. Most of the miners made just a modest profit, and some, now flush with cash, returned home to pursue their dreams and support their families with their newfound riches. Many others stayed on in California. According to Dobie, on the eve of the 1860s, the output of the mines in California reached a high water mark. Nearly $50 million of gold was dug from them thar hills. In the 10 years that followed, the yield dropped to a mere $18 million per year. So who did strike it rich? Historians generally agree that it was the merchants. Due to his resale of mining equipment and the providential location of his store at Sutter's Fort, 
Samuel Brannan became one of the wealthiest men to come through the gold rush. He even became California's first millionaire. He invested in California's first steam railroad, as well as in the development of a wharf in San Francisco. Brannan also bought land at the northern end of Napa Valley and developed the town of Calistoga. Brannan's wife eventually divorced him, and he was forced to liquidate his estate to pay her settlement. He moved to Mexico in his later years, but returned to San Francisco to pay off outstanding debts. He died with his debts paid, but didn't leave enough money to pay for his own funeral. Other gold rush merchants built successful businesses and likewise leveraged them into additional enterprises. After all, it was the merchants who were on the receiving end of all the gold. Once mined, the gold had to be transported, assayed, weighed, and safeguarded. In short, it had to be banked. The first San Francisco bankers were the merchants and storekeepers already on the spot. In the 1850s, almost every businessman with a set of gold scales and a strong box became a banker of sorts. According to the annals, prior to the opening of the banks, deposits were made with the different mercantile houses having safes. This was not only the case at San Francisco, but at places in the interior. At Sutter's Fort and afterwards at Sacramento City, the principal house of deposit was S. Brannan and Company. Merchants held and traded the actual physical gold for products and supplies, and then sent it via ship to banks in New York City. In this way, a new economic system was developed. But other merchants were those with the ideas something new to offer to the Argonauts that they never knew they needed. Levi Strauss, a Bavarian Jewish immigrant, opened a dry goods business in San Francisco and imported fine dry goods from his brothers in New York, including clothing, bedding, combs, purses, and handkerchiefs. He made tents and later jeans, eventually partnering with Jacob Davis to create jeans with copper rivets for extra durability. These jeans were patented in 1873, and if you aren't wearing a pair right now, you're likely wearing jeans designed and built with a similar design technology. Emile Verdier crossed the Isthmus of Panama with valuable merchandise and mule packs, chartered a brig he named the Ville de Paris, and entered the Golden Gate in the spring of 1850. His cargo sold so quickly off the ship's deck that he traveled back to France and made a second voyage in 1851. Verdier opened a store at 334 Clay Street that he also named Ville de Paris, or City of Paris. Simon Lézard was 16 years old when he left his home in Lorraine's Frauenburg to rejoin his older brothers Alexandre and Lazare. They were bound for New Orleans, where an uncle kept a dry goods store. The brothers caught gold fever, left for San Francisco in 1850, and opened an imported goods store. By the 1870s, they turned to banking. Lazard Frère ranks high today among international banks. Adolf Sutro had a lucrative business selling a particular brand of Turkish tobacco to San Franciscans, which he moved to Virginia City, Nevada in the early 1860s when the Comstock Lode began the new silver rush. While selling tobacco, Sutro devised an idea for a drainage tunnel to be drilled under the Comstock mines to let water run out, ventilation run in, and allow the mines to be dug deeper into the ground. He fundraised and campaigned for the idea, 
eventually having the Sutro Tunnel built by 1878, when he leased it back to the mining companies for $10,000 a day. Sutro eventually sold up his interests in the company, moved back to San Francisco, and invested his millions developing property near Ocean Beach, including Sutro Heights, the Cliff House, and Sutro Baths. There's also the story of a young civil engineer, Theodore Judah, who surveyed the Sierra Nevada and had the vision to build a railroad to connect California with the East. He made his pitch to a group of four modest merchants in Sacramento who owned dry goods, grocery, and blacksmithing operations. They invested with Judah, and the railroad became the Central Pacific Railroad. The four men were Collis Potter Huntington, Mark Hopkins, Charles Crocker, and Leland Stanford. Their collective vision and investment of modest means allowed them to leverage their later dividends into the development of banks, political dynasties, art collections, shipping consortiums, and even a university. These four men became known as the Big Four. There's also the story of four native-born Irishmen who arrived in the first wave of gold miners in 1849 and 1850. Two, John William Mackey and James Graham Fair, grew into experienced mine supervisors and engineers, while the other two, James Clare Flood and William S. O'Brien, partnered in opening a saloon on Washington Street in San Francisco. They were bartenders. Mackey and Fair had the mining knowledge, and Flood and O'Brien raised the money. Together, the four invested in the new silver mining enterprise in Nevada, operating the Consolidated Virginia and California claims in the Comstock Lode. In 1873, the Consolidated Virginia Mining Company discovered the greatest silver bonanza in history. The initial investment of the four Irishmen was $100,000. In 22 years of operation, the two mines yielded more than $150 million in silver and gold and paid over $78 million in dividends, making the four owners into some of America's wealthiest men. The four became known as the Bonanza Kings. William O'Brien died at the height of the Comstock's wealth in 1878. Mackey went on to fund railways and transatlantic cables. James Fair eventually went into politics. One of Fair's daughters married shipping magnate Hermann Ulrichs of Norddeutschloid, while his other daughter married a Vanderbilt. The Fair sisters went on to invest in development of San Francisco property, including the Fairmont Hotel. James Flood became a high-stakes stock speculator, and his children developed the Flood Building in downtown San Francisco. It's success stories like these that have no doubt created some of the myth of California, the land of abundance, wealth, and yes, even gold. Some of these stories, and others, of the old merchants of San Francisco will be covered in future episodes of this podcast. In his 1948 book, This is San Francisco, a Classic Portrait of the City, Robert O'Brien wrote, There is the world of smart shops and flower stands on the corners and well-groomed women, and that is downtown and close to Market Street. Grant Avenue is broader there, and when people write to you or tell you how beautiful the women of San Francisco are when they walk, how elegant their carriage, how fashionable their clothes, 
They are thinking of the women they saw on Grant Avenue, just off market. It's a world of mansions in St. Francis Wood and Pacific Heights, of gowns by I. Magnan, orchids by Podesta and Baldocchi, and diamonds by Shreve. A world of filet de sole marguerite and strawberries Romanoff at the palace for lunch, and dry martinis tonight on Knob Hill. A world of cool, blue-tiled swimming pools down the peninsula over the weekend, and golf at the Burlingame Country Club, and a Pan-American clipper flight to the islands when the summer fogs start rolling in from the sea. It's a world, too, of psychiatrist bills and divorces, of children who live half the year with one parent and half the year with the other, and of pampered lapdogs sitting in the front seat beside the chauffeur. A world that has expensive mistresses in its penthouse apartments, and sleek-haired, expensive gigolos in Sierra Mountain Lodges. For the most part, this is a world that began a hundred years ago with a sweating, red-shirted miner digging for motherload gold, or a saloon keeper making his pile on red-eye and forty-rod, or a cursing, driving, two-fisted sea captain making his with cargoes and wooden hellships. Today, the names of their great-granddaughters are in the blue book, and clean-limbed, they stride down Grant Avenue with the grace of thoroughbreds. Thank you for joining me on this prologue episode of The Door Stays Open. Hopefully, this episode will help to frame future episodes about San Francisco, our merchants, our shops, and our shoppers. Sources for today's episode include The Annals of San Francisco by Frank Soule, John H. Guion, and James Nisbet, San Francisco A Pageant by Charles Caldwell Doby. San Francisco Port of Gold by William Martin Camp, Old California in Picture and Story by Stuart Edward White, California, A History by Kevin Starr, and of course, Wikipedia. A complete list can be found in the show notes. I would like to thank my mom, Mary Ellen, for collecting so many books about California and San Francisco history. Thanks, mom. The Door Stays Open was written and produced by Annie Wilson. That's me. Our logo is designed by Kim Mitchell, and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at doorstaysopenpod and email us at doorstaysopen at gmail. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Door Stays Open on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps. Thanks for joining me, and please remember to shop local so that the door stays open. Bye. Bye.